millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a rule, historians like to trade in events that have a clear beginning, middle and end. It makes life easier for obvious reasons. However, some of the most interesting stories are the more complex ones, and today's podcast explores a little-known place in a remote corner of Donegal called Dishirt. Its history is not easily summarised or simplified. Rituals of one kind or another have been practised for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years in this corner of the Blue Stack Mountains. The history of D-shirt, as you're about to hear, can't be neatly explained by labelling it as medieval or modern, Christian or pagan. It's a far more interesting and complex story than that. It's not clear why, but humans have been drawn here for thousands of years, even though D-shirt is remote and inaccessible. It emerges in the historical record in somewhat vague terms. Local tradition holds that a monastery on the site was founded by St. Colum Kill in the 6th century. However, a sacred well hints at the possibility of an even earlier pagan past. Even the modern history of this place is intriguing. In more recent times, D-shirt was used by Catholics when they were persecuted in the 18th century. And then, in more recent times, as a killing, a burial site for unbaptized children. This continued into the 20th century. Now last summer I visited D-Shirt because a local community project have joined forces with an international team of experts from Atlantic Technological University in Sligo, the US-based Institute for Field Research and the California State University, LA, to unlock the history of this site. Now the project included a series of excavations led by Dr Fiona Beglane from the Atlantic Technological University in Sligo. And in this episode, recorded at D-Shirt, she shares some of the fascinating history she has discovered. Before we begin, let's get the introductions out of the way. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the Irish History Podcast. I want to thank Dr Fiona Beglane for her time in showing me around the excavation and allowing me to record this episode. Also, a special thanks to listener Rebecca Grace, who had travelled from the US to work on the excavation and got in touch to let me know about this remarkable place. But now to begin our journey through the remarkable story that is the history of D-Shirt. Dr Fiona Beglane sets the scene now by describing the dramatic landscape that surrounds the site. Throughout the show, you're going to hear occasional noises in the background. That's just the archaeologists at work, so don't think there's anything wrong with your headphones. 
We're about 10 kilometres northwest um, as the crow flies from Donegal town and we're in the foothills of the Blue Stack Mountains. So we're surrounded by mountains on two sides and then the land drops away um, and eventually ends up at the sea near Donegal town and near Inver Bay. While the landscape may be stunning, the fact it has been sacred to the local community for centuries led to the excavation. I asked Fiona about this spiritual association with this landscape. She began to explain this by pointing out a mountain called Carnoween. This evocative name translates from Irish to mean the height of the birds and from there Fiona gives you a great sense of how special this place is to the local community. To the north of the site you've got Carnoween, uh, the height of the birds and uh, that's a sacred mountain, it's uh, sacred to St Columkill. It's climbed on the Saturday nearest to his feast day which is the 9th of June and it also has various folklore attached to it, so there's a Dermot and Gronia's cave up there um, where Dermot and Gronia were said to have, have, have spent the night, as they did in many places around the country. Just to interrupt Fiona here, Dermot and Gronia are figures from Irish mythology. The earliest written accounts of this story are relatively recent, dating from just the 16th and 17th centuries, but the story is much older, probably originating in the early Middle Ages, if not before. The same can be said for the next folk story associated with the mountain, that of Finn McCool. Also, Finn McCool was supposed to have stood on the top of the mountain and destroyed the church that's at Decent by throwing a large rock down from the top of the mountain and it landed in through the roof of the church while mass was being said. Today, in the place where, the, uh, where we believe the church was, there is a huge rock right in the middle of what's now the graveyard. And that's probably a way of explaining how this huge rock ended up there. Um, so this has probably been moved here after the church was demolished because you wouldn't have a big rock in the middle of your church. Um, it's a, it's a, a story of kind of maybe the end of the use of the, of the church at the site. Well, Carnoween, that mountain that overshadows the site and the associated mythology, don't date D-shirt necessarily. They underscore the sacred nature of this site over generations. Next, I wanted to get a sense of the history. Now, untangling this, given the beliefs and ritual practices that have been practised here for centuries, was never going to be easy. I mentioned earlier that local traditions claim the site was founded by St. Colum Kill in the 6th century, but I'm going to start the history much later, when D-shirt first appears in the surviving historical record. This is a bit like starting in the middle and working our way out, but it's the easiest way to understand this incredible site. It doesn't appear in the written record until the 17th century. And at that time, all of this land was owned by the Church of Ireland. So it had been church land all the way through the medieval period. It wasn't being used for an actual church at that point in time, but um, the land was being rented out for agriculture. So as Fiona just explained there, we know that D-shirt was church land in the 17th century. While that indicates at the very least it was owned by the church, before we move back into older history, it's worth exploring the history of D-shirt in more recent times. 
During the 18th century, Catholicism was severely repressed in Ireland, and as Fiona now explains, Catholics in the local area were drawn to Dishart to practice their faith, which also suggests it obviously had some spiritual resonance for this community. That was a period of time when, with no access to Catholic churches, there was a desire to find ways of continuing with Catholic worship. So that means that they would have deliberately sought out places like this that had historical association with the church um, and use those places. An altar used to say masses from this period still survives on the site. So this is the altar and this dates back to penal times and it's about three foot high, so roughly a metre high and um, it faces towards the rock, in other words, away from the congregation. So people would have um, gathered and still gather uh, near St Conkill's feast day, um, gathered for mass here or for prayers. And in the past, priests during the penal times would have come up here and, um, and said mass there. It's dry stone structure um, and it's, it's very, very simply built but it's tucked in behind this large rock or series of rocks and that would have given shelter from the wind. But it also meant that the priest wasn't immediately visible to people coming in from outside. So they would have had lookouts on the various hillsides and approachways um, to here and they would have seen if, for example, soldiers were coming looking for the priests and the priest was tucked in there out of the way and when the signal was given that someone was on the way, he could disappear up over the hills and across the mountains and never to be seen again, basically. Dishart was a local site of pilgrimage for people as well. Now, this is important in terms of understanding the wider history. Fiona first explained what we know about the pilgrimage and after that she'll talk through what exactly people did when they came here. The pilgrimage probably started during the penal era in the sense of the modern pilgrimage that we know um, today. Many of the places around Ireland, we think that's when the pilgrimage is started. Having said that, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a medieval or an early medieval pilgrimage as well, but probably a different way of, of expressing that pilgrimage. The, the idea of the stations and the beds and doing the rounds seems to be something uh, from, from the penal era onwards, uh, as far as we know. Fiona explained what happened when pilgrims came to T-shirt. She mentions the word cairn next. We'll come back to this, but in this context of T-shirt, a cairn is just a large pile of stones. People would come here and they would go from place to place, station to station, stay, saying their prayers and placing rocks on top of various cairns around the site um, as, part of their, uh, as part of their devotions. The site was known for having healing properties as well during this period. Fiona explains some of the rituals that would be carried out by people when they came to Dishart in the hope of curing ailments. Heads up here, sometimes Fiona refers to the pilgrimage by the term tourists. That's just the Irish word for a pilgrimage. It's a very special place. There's a holy well here. And the holy well has a has a cure for eyes. So if uh, you have an eye infection, for example, then um, washing your face and your eye with with that water is supposed to help it. And that makes logical sense because spring water will be clean by comparison with what people would have had access to from rivers and streams before um, before running water. So washing out your eyes uh, with that would would definitely help in a 
before antibiotics and things. Um, so that's definitely one part of the site that's important. We've got St. Column Kills Arch, which there's a small arched feature, and if you crawl through that arch three times and you say your prayers and then you lie down on a big recumbent slab, then that's supposed to cure your backache. So there's a few different cures associated with the site. So that tourist has, to a certain extent, passed out of use, but there's still a lot of people who come up here to say their prayers. Uh, they may not do the whole thing, but they come up, they say their prayers at the altar, for example, or they say um, prayers at the holy well, and, um, and it's very much a special place still um, to, to local people. There's still, um, on, uh, in and around St. Colm Kill's feast day, there's usually prayers or a mass um, that are said here and there'd be a, a good turnout from the local community. While the site was used by the community continuously, the attitude of the Catholic Church and its priests changed in the 19th century. After repression of Catholics ended with Catholic emancipation in 1829, the Catholic Church began a massive church-building programme. This would see priests stop saying masses at Dishert. So when the, when the Catholic Church was built at Drimarone, um, which is about two or three miles away from here now, then the priests wouldn't come up here and say Mass anymore, but they would have said Mass up here until, until that point in time. So once there's a Mass house there and, and at um, Frosses, about three miles the other direction, um, then that's the end of the church kind of wanting to do outdoor masses. They wanted to get people into the churches and have a more organised, formal style of religion. Now, in the very more, much more recent times, priests are happy to come up here for St. Colum Kill's Feast Day, but it's not a, a regular event. It wouldn't be somewhere that they would want to be doing mass every, every Sunday. However, the community continued to use the site in various ways, including as a Killeen. Now, Killeens are poignant places in the Irish landscape. For generations, the Catholic Church denied burial to unbaptised children. Understandably, their parents wanted to bury their children somewhere with spiritual significance, so they returned to Dishirt, a site with age-old traditions. It was also then used as a killing as well, so in other words, a children's graveyard for unbaptised babies once it fell out of use as being adult burials and uh, we know of people who locally who've told us of killing burials well into the 20th century in this graveyard. Okay so at this point we've brought the story up to the present. It's clear from documented history over the last few centuries that T-shirt has deep spiritual significance to the local community. As Fiona now explains though she wanted to find out if it stretches back earlier into the early medieval period and maybe looking to see if that connection with St. Colum Kill could be proved. The aim of the project really is to understand Dishit, to understand the site, um, its origins um, and its history. The site was reputed to be founded by St. Colum Kill in the uh, 6th century and one of the aims of the project is to find out whether it dates back to that time period or whether all the evidence is later than that um, and that will help to, to fix a, a beginning for certainly the early medieval activity on the site. When we think of archaeology we often conjure up images of excavations but there's usually months if not years of research that has gone into any project before any soil is ever broken. 
This involves looking at history, folklore, the wider landscape, even place names to see if they help us understand the past when the historical record may be silent. Looking across the landscape, Fiona began with the basics, the name. What does that mean and what can it tell us? The name Gishut means a lonely place, an isolated place, um, a place apart. And the same place name appears in a lot of different places in Ireland. Um, in a lot of parts of the country, it's called Dysut. But here in Donegal, it's more like Gishut. And it's just a, a pronunciation difference. Where we get that place name, there's about 50 different places with that name. And where we get that place name, it's associated with monastic sites from the early medieval period, from the, the sort of earliest introduction of Christianity. And at that time, what the monks were trying to do was to do the same thing as the desert fathers in the Near East. They were trying to go out into isolated wildernesses um, and spend their time basically communing with nature and getting in touch with God um, and being away from the, the secular world. Further evidence that this was indeed an early medieval monastery is the location in the landscape. Fiona mentions the word Tua here. This was a small territory ruled over by a local king in the early Middle Ages. The site is on the border between two, two different Tua and that will be a very common place to find a monastic site from the early medieval period because the local kings would have given land to the church that was on the edge of their territory. That did two things. Firstly, it meant that the church was getting a gift but they weren't too close to the centre of power. Um, which meant that the king's authority wasn't being usurped, if you like, by the church. Um, but it also meant that if the neighbouring king was going to invade, for example, they'd have to come through church land to get there, and they might be less likely uh, to want to do that. So it almost provides a buffer zone between neighbouring to a, uh, of a kind of independent, um, neutral territory, if you like. Folklore is often used by archaeologists as a pointer. While it can have fantastical, magical and supernatural elements, it often contains what we might call signposts to actual historical events. So they came up here, um, they, they created this site, and the story says that it was created by um, St Colm Kill, that he founded the site, and he, that he did so by blessing the land and he took a quernstone which sits on the altar, looked through that quernstone and blessed all the land that he could see. Now, if you actually look around you when you're up here, what you can see is you're in a patch of really good land surrounded by poor land. And that means that really what the monks were doing was when they came up here and they set up them in a monastery up here, they wanted land that was capable of supporting them and we know that there was uh, agriculture going on in this townland right up to the mid-20th century which isn't true for the townlands around it which are very sort of boggy and, and, and poor quality. However as Fiona now explains given it's constantly being added to you need to adopt a critical approach when using folklore. Folklore is always being added to uh, and it's always changing and people fit folklore uh, and new stories to new events that are happening in the place. So I think the fact that there's so many associations between Carnaween, G-Shirt, people like Finn McCool, Dermot and Gronje, there's, there's a folklore that goes back, but 
different aspects of that tale are being added to all the time. And I think when the church was destroyed or fell down and then maybe people were piling up stones that came from the monastery as a whole and clearing land maybe for agriculture, that they then two or three generations later they're saying, well, how did that stone get there? Finn McCool put that stone. So they're adding to that folklore. So it's, it's a growing, living thing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. While all of this suggests a long history, potentially stretching back thousands of years, Fiona began to explain what her excavations at the site have revealed. There have been three to date, one in 2019, one in 2021, and then one in the summer of 2022. From her excavation in 2019, Fiona was able to push back the earliest human presence at Dishart thousands of years, as she explains now. Excitingly, in the 2019 excavations that we did here, what we found was um, we found some pieces of worked flint and chert. So there's evidence for prehistoric activity on the site, probably Bronze Age, um, but the pieces of, um, of work tools that we found, of stone tools that we found, weren't sufficiently diagnostic to get a tighter date than that. So people were definitely up here in the prehistoric time period, but um, we don't know yet what they were doing. While these archaeological finds are evidence that humans have been at Dishart for thousands of years for one reason or another, Fiona has been able to identify boundaries that you would expect to find at a monastic settlement from the early Middle Ages. That's generally before the year 1000 AD. Now, geophysical surveys which can identify features beneath the soil have been crucial in this, as Fiona now explains. The site as a whole is surrounded by a large enclosure and it follows around in a large enclosure from those big stones that are on the edge by their ferns and they follow around into the next field. They loop around, um, they come back into this field, they come across here um, and in places you can't see it but we can pick it up on geophysics, um, round by trench one and all the way round and join back up again. And it seems to be a mixture of ditch um, with bank or stones as well. And that will be the, the, the kind of main monastic enclosure. While her research and surveys had strongly suggested an early Christian monastery, next we looked at the trenches she had opened at the site. There were three in total and Fiona explained these one by one each focused on various aspects of the site and its history. The first was cut into the boundary ditch. Fiona explains what this could reveal. Yeah, there's three different areas that we're working in. So trench one is looking at the main ecclesiastical enclosure. It's looking at the main ditch of the ecclesiastical site. 
and we hope that at the bottom of it we'll get dating evidence for when the site was created. And then above that we're finding, we haven't got down to that level yet, but above that what we're finding is evidence for craft working, maybe some kind of metal working, something that involved a lot of fire. Um, we've got lots of fire cracked stones, we've got lots of charcoal, um, we've had pieces of slag, we've had a piece of half melted glass. So people were doing some kind of craft activity here. It wasn't in the earliest days of activity on the site, but it was at some point between then and now. We don't know when yet, we don't have a radiocarbon date for that yet. So that's what that trench is doing. The second trench is at a holy well on the site. Now holy wells, in some instances, can date back thousands of years. Fiona explained what they were looking for. Then we have the trench at the holy well, and we wanted to see how far back people's devotion at the well went. So we were looking to see the types of, um, of pottery, for example, that had been left, um, and any other devotional objects, any kind of coins and things like that. She went on to explain what they found. There's a lot of evidence for um, devotion at the well. As we went down through it, we were finding things like rosary beads, uh, miraculous medals, those kind of things. We've also found lots of pieces of pottery and glass there as well. And we haven't had it all looked at in detail yet, but a lot of that pottery is looking like it's 19th century. Uh, so some of it may be a couple of hundred years old. And all the pottery, or certainly most of it anyway, that we're finding over there is cups or else glasses, bottles, things like that. So people are bringing their container up to get the holy well and um, to take a drink of the holy water. And then maybe the cup gets broken and they leave it there. Or maybe they actually leave a whole cup there for the next person to be able to use. And then eventually it gets broken. And it, uh, So we found lots of lovely matching pieces that, that we could put back together. And that will all be looked at by a pottery specialist in, in the future. The third area of excavation focused on what is one of the most intriguing features at Dishirt. There are a number of cairns in the graveyard area that were central to the pilgrimage. The word cairn, as I've mentioned earlier, is used to describe a mound of stones. And in archaeological contexts, they are most commonly associated with prehistoric features. However, the cairns at Dishirt are more complex. They were part of the more recent pilgrimage phase of the site. While there was one near the site of the well, Fiona's team excavated one in the graveyard area, which revealed an intriguing feature. Fiona first, however, explains what these cairns were and what they were used for. The cairns themselves are about maybe three metres in diameter, and they're maybe about a metre or so high. And they're just piles of small stones is what you can see on the surface. Each of those cairns would have been one of the stations on the tourist. You would have gone round and you would have placed a stone on top of the, of the mound and then you move on to the next cairn and you do the same thing, saying your prayers, walking around it and putting a stone on and moving around the site in a, a clockwise manner, always in a clockwise manner. Inside the cairn, they found a large slab. Inside that, there's a, a large slab 
that may have been decorated at one point in time, but at the moment we can't see any decoration on it. But it may have had a cross or something inscribed on it um, originally. It's very, very weathered and, and, and damaged, if you like. The fact that it was weathered indicates it was not always inside the cairn, and that before it was covered by the stones, it was exposed to the elements. Fiona now explains the slab probably dates to a much, much earlier period. The cross slabs at Glen Column Kills she compares it to are over a thousand years old. Looks very much like some of the uh, cross slabs uh, with the with the labber at Saint uh, to, at Glen Column Kill, which is obviously also associated with with Saint Column Kill. As we concluded our tour, Fiona took me to the back of the site, which has an unusual stone arch which was used on the pilgrimage, like a little oval enclosure um, with a, a kind of a um, a slab-built entranceway is perhaps the best way to describe it. And then on top of the entranceway, there's, there's, a, there's a lintel stone and there's a pile of small stones on top of that. And that pile of stones is also part of the tourist. You go through the arch three times and there's a, you can see there's a little path worn to one side of the, yeah. of the arch. Um, through there three times, um, say all your prayers, you put a stone on the top and then you come and you lie down on this big flat rock here um, and um, it's part of the actual pilgrimage itself but also doing that is supposed to cure your backache if you lie on that slab but my theory is if you can get through that gap three <laughs> times there's nothing wrong with your back <laughs> this does have the look of the remains of a megalithic tomb which would be thousands of years old but as fiona now explains T-shirt is a complex site and nothing can be taken for granted. It's not clear what exactly the archway and enclosure was, but it's probably relatively recent. Now, when I say relatively recent, everything at T-shirt is probably hundreds of years old, but it's still in more recent centuries. There was a, a local historian back in the 1960s who thought that it was the remains of a court tomb, of a megalithic tomb, but there's no real evidence that that's the case. Looking at it, from a, a modern archaeological perspective, and I've, I've shown it to a number of prehistorians, and we don't think that it's a, a prehistoric tomb, um, but it does have that kind of look about it. As Fiona brought me around the site at Dishart, one of the things that stood out to me was how the excavation and the Dishart project in general was very much in fitting with the history of the site. It is in many ways continuing that tradition of the community coming back to this place again and again. Fiona explains how the project and the excavation is very much rooted in the community. The project itself was, was created as a, a partnership between us at IT Sligo Stripe Atlantic Technological University as it is now and the local community. And um, I'm a local resident myself. I don't want to see this place destroyed in any way. So we, uh, we created the Dishart Heritage Group to look after and to investigate the site um, and to, to, to protect it into the future and to make sure that it's here for, for, for the future. So everything that we've done has been done with the local community. We've had community volunteers involved in all the phases of it. The original conservation management plan, we had community volunteers helping with recording the upstanding monuments, with the helping with geophysics, which is where we're effectively sort of x-raying the ground to see what's underneath the ground. So 
at every stage, community members have been involved in that. And then the excavation started in 2019. And again, we had community volunteers as part of that. The archaeological team working on the site was a very diverse group that included people drawn from all across the world. But as Fiona mentioned, local community members were involved as well. I got chatting to James Gallagher, who has worked on the dig for two seasons now. I'm James Gallagher. I'm uh, from Dunlow. Anything I knew about archaeology, I saw on television. Time Team and stuff like that. And uh, never, ever thought that I'd get a chance to do ar actual archaeology. And I'm just delighted. And it's, it's, a, it's a dream come true for me. James explained his experiences of the dig. The pace is slower here because on time team they had three days and you know everything was cut and you know scenes after scenes but here it's slower more methodical it's more you know you're 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 recording absolutely everything you're going down in spits of 10 centimeters at a time you're going back in time with each spit which is the lovely thing yeah. and you know and every now and then you find something be it a, a donkey shoe which I found last year, uh, a coin, which I found, lots of glass and lots of pottery and uh, all sorts of things. It was great, great, great to come across something. During my few hours at T-Shirt, it was fascinating to see how Fiona and her team were able to draw out the history of such a complex place and how people from our distant ancestors right down to us in the present day are drawn to these special places in the landscape. I have to say, though, I found the process of how Fiona has approached the site as interesting as the history itself. To finish, I'd like to thank Fiona for her time. It was a really fascinating experience. You can find links to the reports from the T-Shirt Project at the links in the show notes below, and they include, as I say, reports from the excavations. They're fascinating to read. That's where I'm going to leave it for this week, folks. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to get next week's episode. You can find links of where you can subscribe in the show notes as well. Until next time, Sloan. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 